God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. morning, church. My name is Katie, and I get the honor and privilege of reading our scripture for today. If you would please stand as we read the word of God. It's from Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the same, excuse me, came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in, in pure bright linen and the golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues, the seven angels, were finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray today, as Matt is being obedient to what the Holy Spirit has placed upon him to speak to us, that our hearts are open and our minds are just here for you, Lord, and here to hear what you have to tell us. We thank you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you, Frank. Frank the Tank. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. I was in Albany last week to serve our sister church, uh, Greenbrier Church, and Pastor Tim Bice. So I got to preach this message last week. I can't promise you that the sermon will be any better because I have another go at it. Uh, definitely not pr- uh, promising that it's going to be any shorter, okay? I'm not much of a cutter. I'm, I'm, I'm more of an adder to things. So I hope you brought your brown paper sack lunch. Um, just before I preach, uh, I-, I wanted to give you a-, a little bit of announcement that I just wanted to kind of say for myself. Uh, this uh, blocked out wall, that w- weird wonky corner of our auditorium, that used to be my, my office at the church. I've given that over uh, to a room that we want to provide to uh, uh, folks in our church, uh, specifically moms with like babies and you're still like feeding them directly, if I uh, just want to steer away from being indelicate. Um, but it's, it's got a sign on it that, and the name is the Bape Cave, 
It's for babies. There's nothing untoward happening here at the church, at least involving me. Uh, but if, uh, if, you know, when you show up, if any of you are, are, are moms and you got to feed your babies or, or dads and you got like your baby and you're just like, it's crying and you're not ready to take it to the nursery, that room is for you. Uh, Erica Owens, uh, Jordan Owens is uh, uh, on our worship team. He was leading today and, and that's his wife. Actually, he's her husband. He's Erica's husband. Uh, but she did all the work in there uh, in the master plan and it looks wonderful and nice and it smells good as opposed to my old office that smelled like, you know, sweat and dirt. Um, so just wanted to make that announcement and honor uh, Erica for doing that for us too. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We're in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, turn there if you haven't already. Chapter 15. Now uh, I'm going to just do a little bit and switch. Uh, uh, Katie came and read chapter 15, but I'm preaching 15 and 16 today. Uh, and the main point of the sermon the main point of the sermon is this. You'll see it on the screen. It is finished. Jesus' victory in vindication and Jesus' victory in vengeance. I'm going to read it again. Jesus' victory in vindication and Jesus' victory in vengeance. If you don't know what vindication means, it's that feeling you get like Shannon gets when we have a debate or disagreement over what actor or actress is actually in this television show we're watching? And I say, it's that girl from that show. She goes, nah-uh. And then we're considering at least separating, if not divorcing. And then she gets on her phone and gets on the great Google in the sky. And then she finds out that she was indeed right. She goes, ah! That's vindication. Vindication is being proven right. I was on the right side. I was on the right team. I especially when you like feel like you're doubting yourself, other people are trying to get you to doubt yourself, they're gaslighting you, or vindication is we go, ah, ah, in spite of all that everyone said, in spite of what maybe inside of me I was telling myself, I was actually right, I'm right. That's what vindication is. Uh, over the course of the sermon, I'm going to try to answer these three questions and I'm going to keep on repeating these questions to you until you throw up. And when you finally throw up, then I know that you're finally getting it. And the three questions for every sermon are going to be, what should the people of God know about God? What should be the people, not just the Christians, but what should anyone who approaches the scriptures, what do people need to know about God? What is his character? What are his activities? What are his expectations? What is his plan? What are his commands? What do you need to know about God? And then the question two is, how should people feel about knowing that? We live in an age, in a society, in which many would tell you that no one is allowed to tell you that how you feel emotionally is wrong. That you're angry, that you're upset, that you're jealous, that you're sad, that you're weeping, and there are many who would go, no, no, no one's allowed to tell you that you ought not to feel that way. The only thing wrong with that is the word of God, in which God over and over again claims authoritative command over your heart. You have a master of your mind, and you have a king over your heart as well. So over and over again, the Lord has commands and instructions, expectations over the, the emotional content of your heart and how you feel. Places in which sinners rejoice in their sin and they're happy. And the, and the Lord of heaven and earth would go, you shouldn't feel that way. And for others who are angry and upset, 
over what they perceived to be wrong or insult or offense. And the Lord would go, uh, you shouldn't be angry. You should be frightened and repentant. So how should the people of God feel? How should the people sitting on the, under the preached word feel about what they, what they engage in, this, in the scriptures that I'm going to preach today? And then question number three, what should people do with what they've learned? What should we do about what we've heard today? Because God's word calls out every page, every phrase, every word of the scriptures calls out to humankind to respond. It is not God's intention that human beings would hear the word of truth, the word of God, the creator, and sit back and go, oh, yeah, that's all I have to think about. This is really interesting. I might consider that. This is the master and creator over the universe. And when he speaks to us, we not only take note and learn, we not only take note and adjust our hearts to him, but then we are commanded, we are called upon to respond, to give to obey, to change, to go and be sent, to stay put and be patient. So how ought we to respond to what is preached today? Those are the three questions I'm always thinking of as I'm preparing and studying the scriptures, and those are the three questions we need to have rolling through our minds as it's preached here in the worship service. So in Revelation chapter 15, we start in verse 1. John is the I here, the apostle John. This is the youngest, probably the youngest member of Jesus' original 12 disciples. John has been given visions, a series of visions from God through Jesus, through, like Jesus who is God, through his angels. He's been receiving these visions. And so the book of Revelation up to this point and continuing on has not been a chronological story of the future, but it has been God revealing both past and present and future things through mysterious and sort of apocalyptic windows. And they're not chronological, at least in the sequence of these windows that John gets to peer through. And so yet again, he sees another sign, and this is yet another window that God is letting John look through. I saw another sign in heaven. Where? You may respond. Where? Where? In heaven. So we've seen signs, like John has seen visions and signs that, uh, of things occurring on the earth or in heaven or in this place or that place. Now we're back in looking through the window at something that's occurring in heaven. And it was great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. We're like, well, all right, there's seven plagues and there's wrath, and John, you're just calling it great and amazing? Like, yeah, I love plagues. God's wrath, hooray. When John says this word, great and amazing, he, you could possibly supplant it with, with a different word, like terrific. And I don't mean like terrific, you did terrific, you read your book, here's your book at coupon, go to Pizza Hut, get your free person. No, terrific means terrifying. Like a terrific lightning bolt that just about gave you a heart attack, this is great it is amazing, it's astounding for the people of God. We might look at it and find it terrific and terrifying and yet glorious, and we're stirred to kind of fearful happiness. And to those who reject and oppose God, they would see this as great and amazing in a terrifying way and dislike it. There are seven angels, and they have seven plagues, and they're the last. We've seen, we've seen series of prejudgments throughout the book of Revelation the, the, the scroll that 
God the Father has, and he's holding on the throne, and the, and the lamb who comes forward and is worthy to take the scroll from his hand, it's sealed with seven seals, seven probably, you know, maybe wax seals. And so each, as each of those seals is broken and the scroll is being prepared to be opened, each of those seals issues a prejudgment of God upon his sinful enemies. And there were seven trumpets, and now there are seven bowls, and, and these are the last the preceding judgments are exactly what I've called them. They're prejudgments. They are God's judgment, but they are a preview to the final judgments of God. They were warnings, those previous ones. They were beckonings. They were a call from God to the rebellious lost, the unbelieving unsaved. And these were acts of a loving God. These were the prejudgments of God that we've seen so far. The, the anger, the fury, the wrath, the, the calamity that the Lord so far in the book of Revelation has released upon the earth, those are loving acts by a loving God. And again, we, we live in a world that would go, how is that loving? There's no way that could be loving. There's no way that that could be loving. That's, that's wrathful and angry. That's very, that's very hateful. That's God's hatred. So how? How could those be loving acts from a loving God? Well, we'd start here is that God doesn't, God doesn't have to warn or call anyone. God doesn't have to warn anyone. He's not required to. God is not required to send Moses to Pharaoh and say, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a God. He created everything, and you have his people, and you're very wicked, and he sent me to tell you to let his people go. Otherwise, you're going to have to answer to him. God doesn't have to send Moses God is very kind and patient and generous to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to come and say, hey man, you better quit. You better stop. You better change. God says so. He didn't have to send Moses to Pharaoh. He didn't have to set aside a series of 10 plagues upon Egypt that progress in fury and wrath and darkness. God could have just hit the red button and gone straight to DEFCON 1 and blown the place, just turned all of Egypt into a sheet of glass, miraculously save his people, and they just inha inhabit Egypt and its houses. But the Lord, over and over again, is described and recognized as a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so... Even in these prejudgments, these are warnings, these are beckonings, these are calls that no one, no one in the universe has, would have any right to shake their fist, point their finger if he were to withhold any of these warnings and go, you move too fast, how dare you? You didn't give him enough chances. No human being, no angel, no spirit, nothing. No one has the authority or place to judge him. And yet he has been slow to anger. He sent these prejudgments. Verse 2. And I, John, saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. And they were standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now, <laughs> two weeks ago, Pastor Tim, who's preaching through this sermon series, Tim Bison at Greenbrier Church, we we're preaching through Revelation together, and we asked both of our churches, I asked you two weeks ago, how are you going to finish this life? How are you going to finish this life? Because your entrance into eternity begins with one of two sorts of gatherings. It's either going to be a wedding or a funeral. 
You either start your eternal existence by beginning a new life with God and his people as his bride, as his beloved, always accepted forever and ever and ever with the most important and precious and worthy and valuable person in the universe, or you'll begin that eternal existence with an ongoing death divorced from that God and his goodness. These people, this, this is the great multitude. We've seen them before. This is the great multitude that John has seen several times over and over again. These are the ones who belong to God. At one point, they're described as a great throng too innumerable to count. At another moment, he decides to go, uh, it's too innumerable. How many, but how many, John? It's like 144,000. Like he just, it's like, it's like a lot, right? And this is the great throng. This, this is the church. These are the people of God. Pre-Messianic, pre-Jesus, Old Testament believers, Abraham and Isaac, Adam and Eve, Noah, all the great people from the Old Testament who before Christ still looked to God for their salvation and hoped their faith in God and Jesus was applied to them for their faith and post-Messianic people, the New Testament church. These are people, they these are the people who conquered the beast and its image. These are the saints under the altar from earlier in chapter 4 or 5 of Revelation. The saints who are under the altar, they, they died because they were Christians. Like they were killed because they were Christians. For their faith and their allegiance to Jesus, they were killed. And these are the ones who are under the altar crying out to God, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood and set everything right and, and make an answer for all the injustice? This is the full number of all those who have and will die for the name of the Lord. These are the ones of Revelation chapter 12, if you recall them. Revelation chapter 12, those who over, have overcome the evil one by their testimony to the blood of the lamb who was slain and their own blood testifies to his blood, for they love not their own lives even unto death. This is the church, this is the people of God. And they sing, verse 3, John says that they're singing the song of Moses. Do you want to get, take a guess at who, who probably gets the honor of teaching them the song of Moses? Moses. It's probably, I don't know, I don't, I'm, that, that theology is in pencil, all right? But the song of Moses. This is, this is Exodus talk. When the people of God have been rescued and the great beast of the Pharaoh of Egypt has been conquered and God puts to shame not only Pharaoh and the Egyptians who had been enslaving them, but also shames all of the Egyptian gods. He then splits open the Red Sea, making a way for God's people to leave enemy territory and enter into freedom, into their new life as God's people with God. And what do they do when they cross? They sing the song of Moses. You can go back, back and read it about in the book of Exodus. But they're, they're singing either that song or like, like a cover remix. Right? They got DJ Khaled doing the new, if, he's, if he gets saved, right? Uh, or I don't know if he is saved, but they, they just, they're either singing the original or they're singing a remix. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and they sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. This isn't the only time this, in, this, in these two chapters we're going to see just being applied as a descriptor to God. 
Just and true, not false, but true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you guys remember the world's response to the dragon and the first beast from chapter 13? This unholy trinity of Satan, the the dragon and, and his unholy son, the first beast, and the unholy spirit, the second beast. And when the first beast shows up on the scene, what's his strategy? What, what are his schemes? He comes in very apparent arrogance, blasphemy, power, pride, sophistication, coolness. The first beast comes to persecute God's people overtly and apparently and violently. Like, he is not subtle. And do you recall how the world responds to them, the unbelieving world? They go, oh, wow. He's awesome. You see his six-pack abs? Do you see his biceps? Do you see how cool he is? Check out his Instagram. This guy has it. Man, and you know what? He's saying all the stuff we've been, he's, he's telling the truth, man. Right, he's just telling it like it is. He's, uh, he's been saying, he's saying about this God and his people. Well, we've been saying for years, man, we like this guy. He speaks for us. How great is the, the beast? Who can stand against him? Do you, do you recall what I, what I told you about those rhetorical questions? How great is he? Who can, who can stand against him? Those are rhetorical questions of praise that ought to be reserved only for God and his worship. And the unbelieving world takes what is reserved for God and applies it to the beast. Let me ask you, don't you feel, I mean, what do you feel? Like, don't you feel frustrated or angry or sad when we Christians look like fools in front of the world? When they mock us, when they make fun of us? When the world points out trial and pain and tragedy when they point to things that they know that God hates and they mockingly ask you, where's your God? Hey, where's your God now? Huh? Uh Uh-oh, Christian, where's your God? Where is he at? Doesn't look like he cares. Doesn't look like he's interested. Maybe he's not paying attention. Maybe he's not all that powerful. Maybe he's not real. When the world points to very real professing Christians, even pastors or leaders, who disqualify themselves and show themselves to be truly and deeply and grievously sinful, and the world looks at us and goes, oh, is that, is, is that what your God likes? Is that what you guys are all about? Where's your God? You know what our answer is? It's so often the answer I've, I've had which is just like confusion and befuddlement. I'm not, I don't know even what to say. You're wrong, but it looks like you're right. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed and I feel full of doubt. Not until this chapter. Now your answer is given to you here in the book of Revelation chapter uh, 15. And it's this, I know exactly where my Lord is. I know exactly where my God is. He is seated on his throne, and he's storing up wrath. He's storing up wrath. He's storing up anger. He's storing up judgment. 
He's storing up his wrath for the day appointed for all of his vengeance to be poured out onto those who persecute him and his people, onto those who increase the extent and the depth of sin in this world, to all who mock and insult and offend and rebel against him and do the same to his bride, the church. Listen, I've had this conversation with so many of you, and if I haven't had it, then I see the need for the conversation because I look at your Facebook. Don't be scared about the church in America. Don't be scared about America. All right, it's in trouble. But America's kindling and not the church. Jesus is married to the church and not America. Be worried about America. Sure, it's a great country. I like it. I like it a lot. It needs help. But don't, don't chew your fingernails and wring your hands and lose your mind with anxiety and fear over what ha is happening governmentally, politically, socially, culturally, and what effect it's going to have on the church. Don't be scared for the church. She lives. You can, for like 20 euro, 15, 20 euro, like 30, 40 bucks, you can go and take a tourist tour of the Roman Colosseum today. And the Roman Colosseum, in large part, stood as a monument and it was built as a, as a way to entertain Roman citizens as the Roman Empire, the greatest and longest-lasting empire the world has yet to see, tried to stamp out and destroy Christianity in the church. And now you can pay about 30 bucks and take a tour of their ruins. Don't be scared for the church. I think we ought to have the... We need to transfer that concern and that worry and that prayer and that angst to those who will not be vindicated, but instead are objects of wrath, objects of God's vengeance. Don't worry about the church. Worry about those who do not know Jesus. And as of yet now, it, it appears they're still in the path of his oncoming fury. It seems like God often lets Satan and sinners make the first move, right? Because so far, we've seen a lot of activity on the earth. Like, we, we just spent a few chapters of, like, the dragon showing up and his first beast son and second beast son coming on. And they're doing all this stuff, and they're hurting the people of God. And it, when you go through the Bible, you keep on seeing it almost always seems like God lets the bad guys get the first move, the first word, the first few moves. What up with that, God? You know why? To show the glory of God. For what purpose does God say, not only in Exodus, but also in the book of Romans, for what purpose did God raise Pharaoh up and make him the most powerful man on earth? He was raised, he was raised up to power for God's purpose in laying him low to show God's superior authority, his superior greatness. God seems to like, it, it seems apparent that he likes to operate from like his knees with like both arms tied behind his back. 
and he often seems to say to his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, and to his church, get on your knees. Uh, but they're coming. To... Get on your knees. Put your hands behind your back. Uh, I can't fight this way. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can. I fight for you. Get on your knees, both hands behind your back. I want to limit you. Hey, get in your armies too big. I want to whittle it down to 300. 300, that's not enough. I fight for you. I am enough. He over and over and over again. Why? I'll put it to you in this not crude, but kind of low and vulgar way. Uh, if you could go to McDonald's and get a good hamburger, who gets the credit? The chef in the back or the clown out front? The chef. So when God's people look weak and seem foolish, and we look, we're, we're not only on the ropes, but we're, we're like laid out, and half of us are dead, or most of us are dead, and all of our stuff's being taken, and they're closing down our churches, and our pastors are getting arrested, and we don't look good, and we don't look cool, and that's, that's where God prefers to operate from, so that when he lays low, his and our enemy, it is clear who did the fighting and who did the winning. Him. And so they glorify this God who fights for them, who has saved them. He alone is holy. All nations will come and worship you in your righteous acts. And the song of Moses is being recorded here, not the actual song, but it just says they sing it. Do you know what that is? Do you know why God is showing John that they're, the people of God are going to sing this? It, it's a promise. It's a foretaste, a preview. It's a guarantee of the vindication of the Lamb of God and his people. You see, the world is full of songs too. Satan and the world have their own chants. They have their own rah-rahs. They have their own song. They have their own boasting and swagger. They got their own cheerleading. But our God, he always gets to make his move, and he always claims the last move, and he always gets the last word, and he and his people will be vindicated, and we're going to sh share in this last word our vindication, our vindication, our being proven right is going to be found in his proving that he is right. So verse five, after, after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tenth of witnesses in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. All right, so where are we? We're in heaven. Where specifically? Do you know where we're at, right? Do you know where, where John is seated and, and what he's looking at? We're back, in the, we're, we're back in the place of Revelation chapter 5, the throne room of God. How do you know? The people of God are standing next to this sea of glass that looks like fire. That's in the throne room of God. That's where God is worshiped, and that's what the people of God are just doing. And now out into the presence of God and his angels and his people, these seven special angels come out. These golden sashes are like an ancient indicator. They're an ancient, like, you know, uniform identifier going, I have authority. I'm special. I can go backstage. Right? I got back. This is backstage credential. This is, I, like, I got a badge. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels four living creatures. What? Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the four angels that look Really weird, weird descriptive, like beast-like angels. They seem to be really important in God's presence. They have authority, and they've been doing a bunch of stuff throughout Revelation. Here, one of these 
creatures gives to these seven important angels bowls, golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. As I prepared, I, I, I saw like some commentaries. They have a question about the, like the, like the way this is translated in the, in the Greek. Is it God who lives forever and ever, or is it the wrath of God who lives forever and ever? Um, and like, I, like, like I even got one article where they like had a kind of like a blog, a, a debate. I'm just like, the answer is yes. He lives forever and his wrath lives forever and ever, right? And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, um, I'm not going to tell you how far along in the sermon we are, but here's my first point supporting, supporting the big idea, the main point of the sermon. It's this, God vindicates his own glory, and he vindicates those who glorify him. Because the world says you're foolish for believing in that God and believing that he's glorious. And God's going to go, uh, I take that. You know, I can hear you. I am, I am God and I am glorious. And they glorify me. God has promised vindication. We have the gospel, which is the good news. Good news of what? of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, his Father and his ordained plan and his Spirit who brings us life. We have the good news. The good news that lets us read and own the words of the Scriptures for ourselves, so we can join our buddy David from thousands of years ago when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who heals all your iniquities? Who for, I'm sorry, who heals all your diseases, forgives all your iniquities? Who, who redeems your life from the pit of hell? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles? If we can join Paul when he goes, if he who did not withhold from us even his own son, how then will he not give also to us every good thing that we need and more? It's because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. We're getting a picture. John is giving us a vision of the fullness. It's a promise, and John is getting to, he's getting to watch the, the video, the preview of the the promise landing on God's people that we were right because he is right. It's not just a future reality, it's a present reality for us. It's, an, it's a now vindication and it's a not yet vindication. You know what is left to do before God's vindication is fully seen and experienced by this world? God often works this way. He makes a promise and gives a little foretaste. And then that's what we have. See, Jesus on his last night in, with his disciples, he's at this you know, last supper. They didn't know it was the last supper. He knew. And what does he tell them? Some of his last parting words were, listen, this world's going to hate you because you love me. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart for I have what? I have overcome the world. And like a few hours later, he's arrested and beaten within a half inch of his life. And the next day, he's whipped and his back is torn off of him. 
And then he's nailed to a tree, naked and shameful, covered in his own filth and sweat and blood and tears and the spit of people he just marched his cross to the streets in front of. And then he dies, and then they take, and then he's buried. Doesn't look like he's overcome. Doesn't look like he's overcoming. But since we have the gospel, we now know, because he's shown us the truth, that that is exactly what his, that is exactly what him overcoming looks like. Yes? So it's a, does it look like the church is overcoming? Not just in America. Does it look like the church is, look, is overcoming in Saudi Arabia or, or in ISIS-held territories or in, or in tribal pagan pockets of South America or, or Africa? It doesn't look like it, but it is. She is. It is a now and a not yet vindication. It will be proven. There are two things that God is going to do and accomplish before this, this thing is seen. Number one, the Lord is slow to anger and very patient. God is, Christ is now permitting his church, you, you watching. He give, he's giving you time. He's giving you his word. He's giving you his prayer. He's giving you his spirit. He's giving you uh, me for whatever I'm worth. He's giving you one another. And he's giving you gifts, spiritual gifts, spiritual power that come from his spirit just as good as mine. And he's giving you money and homes and time for you to remain in this world in order that still more sinners might be robbed out of hell. You see these empty chairs? There's work to do. Yeah? All right, don't look at me. Look at the chairs. This isn't about pumping the numbers up here, except when each of those chairs represents a number of a person who has a soul attached to it who Jesus may very well have died for to redeem and make his own. It's not optional. You don't do what I do necessarily, but you are to do what God has assigned for you to do. And it takes an invite. It takes a coffee. It takes a lunch. It takes a text message. It takes a call. It takes a reminder. It takes a, I will pick you up and bring you there. It takes a, you want to go out for lunch? Yeah, I'll pick you up. Let's do brunch. I'll pick you up at 10. And then you just bring them here. That's a little shady, but you give them lunch afterwards, okay? But the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm giving the sinful world who deserves my wrath and anger, just like you do. I'm giving them you. And you have me. And number two, what must be accomplished is this, that the Lord, once his wrath is kindled, he will move swiftly. He will not tarry. He will ex execute vengeance. And that vengeance is part of how he's going to vindicate himself. And these are the seven bowls that are being poured out, the final judgments, the, the final acts of God executing his vengeance upon Satan, demons, and sinful rebels who have now, until now, stood in opposition to him. And so now we end up in chapter 16. Chapter 16, now the, now the bowls get poured out. Verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the, to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth. Harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that died that, that, died that was in the sea. The, verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. You brought these judgments Depending upon how, like, like how closely you've been studying, this angel calls him, O holy one who is and who was. Do you know what he left out that previous angels have been, leaving, have been putting in? Is to come. Why did he leave that part out? Because he's here. Who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Who brings these judgments? God. You understand this is, uh, this is an entire series, uh, sermon series or even a, uh, an entire book. You need to understand that God is not the source and the creator and author of evil. And yet, God himself has final authoritative say and exercise over all evil. God himself employs evil. Job, as he's suffering suffering. His wife and his friends are like, curse God and die. God's forgotten you. He doesn't, he doesn't like you. Maybe, maybe God isn't even any good. And God goes, y'all shut your mouths. How am I going to receive good from the hand of the Lord, but reject evil from the hand of his Lord? The Lord, Job says, evil comes from God's hand too. But how does he use it without being corrupted by it? How, do, how does God wield evil without being evil himself? Well, I got sharp knives in my kitchen, in the drawer. I can use them. Do you know who's not allowed to use them? Old Marty the party. That's who. My eight-year-old son. All right? And I, and I tell him, Dad can pick these up without cutting myself. I can, well, not necessarily, but just, yeah, believe me, kiddo. I, I can use these without cutting and harming myself or killing myself, but you cannot. There are some instruments, some tools, some things that your father's allowed to lay hold of that you are not. And I tell you this, if that is, and it is a mystery, it is still, I tell you this, the only purpose that God employees evil is for dismantling evil. He uses evil to overcome itself. Satan is a devil, but he is God's devil. And he belongs to God. And he is on a leash. And he seeks permission before he's permitted to do any of his activities. Point two, God does no injustice and when he executes his vengeance, it is only justice upon the unjust. God does no injustice. And when he finally acts with his wrath, when he executes his vengeance, it is a vengeance of justice upon the unjust. Look at verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, 
It is what they deserve. It is what they deserve. I want us to be very clear about what God's word says here and everywhere. And I can feel it. I, when this angel speaks up, that's what they deserve. I can feel it in me rising up a little bit. This worry, this concern maybe that God is a little overreacting, that he's a little hard on some people. I'm a, in, my, in my flesh, I'm a little, oh, even not to the point of inquisitive, help me understand, oh, Lord, but maybe even questioning God. It's in me when I'm the pastor. Is, is God a bit of an overreactor? Do they all really deserve it? I mean, this is terrible. This is hell coming to them. You know, there's a lot of good people on the earth that these bowls are being poured out on. A lot of good folks. I'm not saying that sarcastically. There are grandmas getting these bowls poured on them. Grandfathers getting there, getting these bowls poured. Young people. Non-racist white people. Black preachers. Hard-working Hispanics who have, let's say, come to America and they've worked their way in and they followed the system and obeyed all the laws. A lot of people who pay their taxes and they mow their lawns, and they're even nice to people. They even give to charity. There's a bunch of good people getting these bowls poured out on them. If this took place today on June 13th, 2021, there's a lot of very good people who will fall under the bowls of wrath of God being poured out. Who are these people, according to the words of God? They're the ones who shed the blood of saints and prophets. They're the ones who have drank the rich and luxurious worldly wine of Babylon. We saw that in the previous chapters. They chose the wine of this world to drink, which is earthly pleasures, finding things and people and ideas in this world more pleasurable and more intoxicating and more desirable than than God, and knowing God, and seeking his kingdom. And the angel says, on behalf of the Lord, and you, you know how I know he says, on behalf of the Lord, he goes, it is what they deserve, and God does not go, whoa, 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 slow down, that's a little harsh. Doesn't get corrected. They rejected the mark of God's holy, saving, regenerating spirit, and they've saved room on themselves for the mark of the beast, worshiping and staying with their natural-born father. The prince and the angel of the air, Satan. God is just. He is perfect. God does no injustice to anyone. He does no injustice. Those who suffer under these final judgments are people, let me tell you this, they would hate heaven. Everyone who has these bowls poured out on them, everyone who, who enters into hell, they would hate heaven. And it's not because they despise paradise. They don't hate heaven because they despise paradise. They don't, they wouldn't hate, they're not gonna hate heaven because that, no, thank you very much, a glorified body that never gets sick or dies, never gets tired. I can eat all the donuts I want and never get fat. Pfft, no thanks. No. It's not because they despise having awesome bodies or living forever. They would hate heaven because they hate its king. 
In heaven, the kingdom of God is the place, and it's always and only the place in which God is not only the king, but he's accepted and worshipped and enjoyed as king. Heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is the place that is set aside for those who want the king. The person who really and truly, they really wanted to believe. They really wanted to believe in God. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to believe. They wanted to have faith. But you know what? God didn't give them enough chances. God didn't show up. Like, all, they asked over, show me a sign, God. Jesus, would you show up in my bedroom and talk to me? Prove to me that the words in this Bible that, that I'm reading are, are real. God, just, I mean, you can do anything. I, I read this book. I see all over the place you do some wacky things. Just carve into the side of my house that I'm real. Then I'll believe. But God didn't do those things, and so God sends them to hell, and God was unfair. And that person, they're in the wrong spot. They really should have been in heaven. That person does not exist. person does not exist. At least if you're going to sit under the authority of and believe that the word of God is true, that person then does not exist. They do not reject Christ and his kingdom of his marvelous light. And it's not because there's not enough light. It's because they love the dark. And if you told them, hey, I think your name's written in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain, they would get real suspicious and angry and demand that you take me to your manager because I don't want my name in his stinking book. They deserve it. Odd that it's it's the it's the it's the sinful, unrepentant, gospel rejecting person who gets from God exactly what they've been demanding their whole life. Leave me alone. Get out of my face. I don't want you. I disagree with you. You and your people are stupid. You and your people are old fashioned. You and your you and your book of yours, you don't tell me who I am. You don't tell me what I can do with my body, my money, my time, my mind, my heart. How dare you? King, I'm the king of me. I say what's up. The person under these bowls of wrath, whether they're arrogant or they're just kind of passive aggressive and they're, they're, they're nice and calm toward religion, regardless, they're the ones who actually God gives to them what they want at least in their natural-born self. It's funny, I'm not going to say a lot here, but verse 7, just just because we need some tension released, okay? I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, all, God the Almighty, true, and just are your judgments. Uh, let me tell you, the altar, this like thing, it doesn't, I don't think it's saying something. I think there's an angel there. Why? Why do you think that? Because earlier in the throne room of God, there was an angel who has authority over the, the altar. Do you remember this guy? This angel, there's a big bowl of fire, and God goes, I want you to send some judgment down, angel. And the angel gathers up some fiery coals from the bowl, and he hurls them down onto the earth, prejudging, according to God, punishing sinners and evildoers. Do you recall, by the way, what the book of Revelation says that those coals are? They're the prayers of God's people. All the, every single prayer of every one of God's people who's cried out for help or rescue or redemption or vengeance because they suffer under injustice. 
Not a single though, one of those prayers, though, though you might speak them out in the void and they feel like they're just, they're going nowhere. You're like, I don't even know. No, God gets them. And they're in the bowl. And it's even the prayers of God's people for their salvation that God uses as part of his judgment on those who persecute God and his people. And it's this angel. And here's, here's what I find funny. I just, this is in pencil. It's just a, I just imagine this guy, this angel, he's just in the back. Sorry, tech team, if I'm like, I'm in the dark. But he's just in the back, and he's seeing all this go down, and he likes God's judgment. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're just, yeah, we've been waiting for this. I thought it was chuckle-worthy. <laughs> Maybe that's not it. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. You see that Jim Carrey movie, Bruce Almighty? Right? It's, uh, it's worth, it's, it's worth why. There's some crude moments. Right? It's like, I think it's PG-13. It's got some crude language, right? But there's this very telling moment which Bruce, before he's met God, he doesn't know God, but he's got a lot of opinions about God, and his life's a wreck, and it's Bruce wrecking it, and he blames God for it, and so he takes this, like, you know, religious beads that his girlfriend gave him because she believes in God. He throws them, and he curses God, and he's like, smite away, you mighty smiter. He's challenging God. Like, the, the big gorilla dude who is like able to crush you, and he's already done some things that smacked you around a little bit. It is like not wise to go, is that all you got? Put some stank on it, Ike. Come on, right? No. That's what the people of God do. I'm sorry, that's not, the people of not God do. They curse the name of the God who is showing his indisputable, inarguable, undefeatable power, and they curse him. They don't say they're sorry. They don't repent. They don't give him glory. They don't. They don't quake in fear. They're ticked. They're furious with him. Verse 10, <laughs> the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. I don't even know what that is or sound like. I don't even, yeah, that's real anguish. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. deserve it. They don't repent. And this is for those who will not repent and turn toward God for salvation, but instead go, bring your judgment on. The sixth angel poured out the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Why frogs? No clue. No clue. Uh, maybe it's a call back to like the plagues of Egypt and the frogs. I don't know if ancient Hebrews Ancient Greeks of that time would have gone, ooh, frogs are icky. Ooh, demonic demon frogs? Ah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they thought frogs were awesome. But in this case, John has shown that these demonic spirits coming out from the beast and the, drag, the beast and the dragon, they're, they're frogs. Do you see, listen, do you see what the nature of these final seven bowls of judgment, what God is doing with them? Do you, 
Do you see a pattern showing up? They're a preview of God removing his goodness from the natural order. With these seven bowls, God is deconstructing the creation. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He's de-Genesis-izing the earth. He's smiting not only the people, but the, the planet they live on. So here's point three. God's victory is total and absolute. He vindicates his people and the creation that he's promised them. And he executes vengeance on his enemies and the creation that they've poisoned. He executes his vengeance upon his enemies. And let's say this, the creation that he let them live in, and they use that world to reject him. He's reversing Genesis, at least for a time. You see, God, listen, God, does, God does show love to sinners. God does show love. And I don't mean sinners like we're all, like every Christian here, well, like we're, we're sinners, right? We're sinners and saints, which is weird. I don't, not enough time. I'm at the end of the sermon. I got to get moving. But for the unrepentant, the unregenerate, for those who God will execute his wrath on, he still shows love to them. Do you know, do you know what theologians, you know what we need to call it? You know what we call it? It's called common grace. God's common grace. Non-Christians still get to eat sandwiches. Non-Christians still get to get married and have physical relationships that are pleasurable to them, or at least they believe that are pleasurable to them. Non-Christians get to breathe air, and if any of you like ended up with corona or like maybe ever a, a, a chest infection, like once you finally stick, get to start having air again, you're like, oh, air is way better, way better than I have ever thought about it. Non-Christians get to breathe air. They get to they hear music and they see things and they hear things. And here part of God's final judgment is going, you, you are destined. You are assigned hell where all of my goodness is removed. My wrath is my removal of all the benefits that come with who I am. And so I'm dismantling this world that shows signs of my goodness and grace. And this destruction is heaped up with God's wrath. Verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. These, these are the words of Jesus. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. They assembled them. Who's they? The frogs, the dragon, the beast. They assembled them. Who's the them? The people who are aligned with them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. There is no time, and it's in my notes. It's not because I've just like taken too long. It's in my notes. There is no time for me to get into Armageddon. It's an it's a area in like the, the land of Palestine. It's called Megiddo. And like the world's army is going to get there, and it's going to be China and Russia and like, you know, Iraq and North Korea, and they're going to be on one side, and then it's going to be America and Israel on the other side. Just so you know, that's, that's not true. And yes, I'm making fun of that um, to, to highlight the foolishness of, of thinking that. Suffice it to say, God's apparently going to let the very, 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 very hardened and very, very, very unrepentant and the very, very, very angry enemies of God, he's going to let them gather. Hey, hey, you've done it. We want to fight. And God's go, 
Oh. Cool. Go get your boys. Yeah, you just wait. We'll be right back. We'll see you after school, right? Jesus goes, this is not a good idea for you. This is not going to be a fight. There's a victory and a defeat. And I know which side I'm on, right? Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. Well, is it though? Yeah, it's done. Do you know it's done? Armageddon. Verse 16, they got together. It's done. Where's the battle? I just told you there's not one. I mean, there is one. You know what? We're going to see more of what happens silently here between verse 16 and 17 in later chapters in Revelation. But Jesus isn't showing John that quite yet. He skips right to the angel comes out, goes ding, 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 ding. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no score by not technical knockout, but total ownage and decimation. Jesus wins. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never had been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city, what great city? This is the city of Babylon. What does Babylon stand in for? It stands in for all of the godless, all of the non-Christ-worshipping and submitting kingdoms and people and tribes and philosophies and groups, all that opposes God. This is Babylon all over planet earth. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great. And it's not like God remembers like, oh, oh, you. Mm, no, no, he, it was time for his attention to be drawn to great Babylon. And when he calls her great, he's not like, man, you're great, but sorry, I got to destroy Great Babylon, that's how Babylon, that's how the world, that's how, this, that's how Satan and the systems of the world, that's how unregenerate, non-humble, but very arrogant and prideful human beings who oppose God, that's how they see themselves. Great. He remembered her and made her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. You know what that looks like? I don't know, literally, but I've said this for years. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is explained by the Apostle Paul in a very peculiar way, but it's very enlightening. It says, these people, the, those, who, those who reject God's design and commands for who they are in their bodies, their identity, those who gossip or disobey their parents. So yeah, go read Romans 1. He goes, uh, yeah, the, the, the homosexual and the, the the, the person who disobeys their parents, the person who got, gossips, the, and the pervert, the straight person who's a pervert, and, and the liar. Like, he just gives this list. He goes, God, God sees their unrepentance, and finally God's wrath is just pointed out when he, when he just goes, I'm just going to hand you over to that. That's what you want? Well, that's what you have. You, you, you can keep, you're drinking sand. You're drinking sand, and here I am, the water of life. Let me, can I, let me take this sand out of your hand. That's mine, sin. Along a timeline, God, God's wrath shows up in this. He goes, okay. I'm, ta I'm taking the water with me and all those who drink it. And I've deconstructed the, the creation. 
You like sand, now you're in the desert. Drink up. God's wrath is when he stops sending you pastors or deacons or leaders or brothers and sisters. God's wrath shows up when God stops sending people to you to tell you, hey, you're in sin. You're out of step with God. Take my hand. I'll, I'll walk you back. I'll, help. I'll walk with you. Let's confess and repent and come. Let's get restored. When God simply just goes, okay, you want me to shut up? Oh. That's what he does. He makes her drink all that she was drinking anyhow. Verse 20, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Remember earlier on, some of the first prejudgments of God? There are those who when they face God's judgment as it's coming upon them, they're going to what? They're going to plead with mountains to fall on them and crush them because they think possibly if they can be killed physically, they might not have to face God himself. He's going to remove mountains, whatever those are. There is nowhere to hide. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Final point, your vindication or your vengeance is determined by which king, kingdom, and city you belong to. You're going to be under vindication, you're going to be vindicated, or you're going to be under vengeance? Huh? Which king, which kingdom, and which city do you belong to? See, there's two cities. There's the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God, which represents God's heaven brought down on earth, which is God's kingdom. We'll see more of that in chapter 21 and 22. City of God. And then there's another city called the city of Babylon. Old Testament, just go back and read it. It's in Genesis. There's a city full of people. They're arrogant. They're prideful. They think, hey, we're pretty good. We're the human race. We need to build not only a tower, but we're going to build the greatest city on earth. And we're going to show not only God, but all the gods and all the people there that we're really great. We're going to get humans. We can do it. Can we do it? Yes, we can. We're going to get together. We can learn it. We can discover it. We can engineer it. We can create it. We can, be, we can get together. We just put our minds to it. Have elbow grease and a skull sweat. We don't need God. It's the city of man because man finds no place for God in the city that he's going to create for himself. They sought to climb and take possession over their land in the heavens, and they sought to replace God himself with themselves and gods of their own creating. Humans gathering together, gathering human power. Instead of gathering with God under God's power, they're trying to establish only what God can, which is heaven, and they want to build their heaven on earth. It becomes a metaphor, Babylon, for every human and every for every and any human and or system that opposes God or excludes God or simply asks God to be part of the team. You know, see, that there are tribes, there are groups, there are nations, entire nations, there are entire philosophies, there are entire political systems, there are entire political parties. We talk a lot about God and honoring God and obeying God and God's morals and God's ways in this Christian country. Talk about God a lot but they want him to be on the team. They want him to be on the team. And they're actually part of Babylon. They're part of Babylon. 
but there's another city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. Here, man is dependent upon not himself, but on God. In the city of Babylon, man wants to exert domina- uh, dominion over the earth for man and by man. In the city of God, in the city of Jerusalem, man now holds dominion over the creation as an extension of God's glory and power, as a reflection of God's glory and power. And that's the aim of the Christian church, to depend upon God and see humanity grow and learn and flourish, not because men and women got together, but because God came down to man. God teaches, God saves, God wins, God loves, God protects, God grows us, God wins Which, which king, which kingdom, which city? And you need to ask the Lord to have the Holy Spirit speak up in you. Like, you don't, no, none of us give him permission. So I'm just going to use it as a colloquial phrase, as a figure of speech. I'm going to, just like, in a, in a little while, you're going to do communion. I'm, I'm going to urge you, for those, especially for those of you who are like, oh, I don't really feel like I need to. I'm pretty solid. You especially. During communion, need to ask the Lord and give him permission to go, can you uh, urge the Holy Spirit to speak up and, and judge my heart and soul? Where in my mind, in my heart, with my words, whether spoken or typed, with my actions, whether in secret or in public, Lord, can you help me and show me? Can you judge me for my good and expose where I'm living like a Babylonian? And then help me turn away. Do you know who else deserves to have these bowls poured upon them? You know who deserves to have these bowls of God's wrath and judgment poured on them? Moses and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and Ruth and Boaz, Jesse, Rahab, Esther, Mordecai, Elijah, Elisha, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, Andrew, Philip, Stephen, Martin Luther, John Calvin, both Wesley brothers, Billy Graham, Martin Lloyd-Jones, D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler, Stuart and Katie McGinnis, my mom, my wife, Maggie and Molly and Martin, you, me, we deserve it. This is not a sermon meant to be preached to contrast the people of God with unregenerate hellbound sinners because there is some quality that we have that is not shared with them. These bowls don't get poured out on us. Do you know why? Because God the Father saw fit to to pour these bowls and worse onto his son Jesus on your behalf. So how are these passages? How how does this help us? What are we supposed to do with this? How these, what's the book of Revelation written for? I promise this is my conclusion. What is the book of Revelation written for? Why did God record this mysterious and wacky text the Apostle John tells us in the beginning, and Jesus tells him to tell us to us again at the end of Revelation. These 
are written for the churches to take hope, to take confidence, to find courage, to have fire poured into their bellies that feel empty and steel inserted into their spines which are frail and bent for you to persevere and not be overcome but to overcome the evil one as you, the church, are attacked. So how does this help us? Number one, this helps us because now we can trust that our reward and our blessing is assured and safe with Jesus. Even as our belongings are plundered by the dragon and his worshipers, even as our lives are taken from us. You don't have to vindicate yourself. You don't have to vindicate yourself by winning debates and arguments. You don't have to... You don't have to vindicate yourself by being awesome or proving yourself right with theology or your works or your success. You don't have to prove yourself right to God or anyone else, and especially the world. You see, the world will always call the gospel and the people of the gospel foolish. The world will always oppose Jesus and his gospel, and they'll call it not just wrong but evil. So we are vindicated by Christ and not ourselves. You are off the hook. Put dad's tools down. That's not your project. We don't overcome any enemy by defeating them or showing them up or giving them a piece of our mind or by owning them. Please repent of sharing the videos that are entitled. The guy who speaks for us, watch this video where he owns those guys. Just repent of, don't share those. That's not how we're vindicated. That's not how we're proven right. We now can overcome our enemies the same way that Jesus does. By humbly, lovingly, sacrificially, charitably laying our lives down for them, not killing them. We put the truth of God before them even as they persecute you, mock you, harm you, threaten you, or even kill you. Because we're right. Because he's right. And I'm not, I'm not in charge of proving it. He will. And the second way we respond we trust that our victory is secure with the lamb because he's not only a lamb, he's a lion. He'll have his vengeance. Jesus' victory will come with his vengeance. He avenges all the wrong against himself. And if you offended, angry, upset when Jesus, when God, the Lord, is mocked online or at your job or in your family and you want to do something about it and set him straight and yell at him because you're angry because that's your God and you love him, you know what? Yeah, speak up. But nothing you do or say avenges God and his honor. It's his job. If you're looking to like own them or avenge God's honor, that's not your job. He avenges all the wrong against you. So 
So no more giving them a piece of your mind. No more fighting fire with fire. No more, well, they're not going to apologize. I'm not going to apologize. If they don't have to apologize, I'm not going to. Well, they didn't confess. Well, I'm not going to do mine. Yeah. Well, they're not going to forgive me. Well, then I don't have to forgive them. Well, they're going to say about that. Well, well fine, fine, fine. I'm going to say that about them. No more of that. Because you gain no vengeance for yourself. People of Babylon have come and you say, I like the way you fight, dude. I'll fight the way a Babylonian does. Oh. I'll fight the way God tells me to. And he fights for me. He holds the sword that kills, not you. He condemns, not us. He and he alone has the right, the permission, and the power to kill enemies. And because he and he alone has authority over life and death as the perfect and righteous and final authoritative creator God, that work gets left to him. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So you can be sturdy and you can be hopeful and you can be courageous and brave. You can be brave enough to be meek. And it feels like weakness, but it's not. Meekness is immense strength that to the world that doesn't understand, they think it's weakness No. You can actually be meek. You can be humble. You can be long-suffering. And you can have the peace in your mind and heart that you so desperately want, even in the face of opposition, of slander, division, mockery, harm, and suffering, because Jesus' victory is secured. It's finished. And if you are a Christian who claims to believe it, then you will be vindicated. As Je when Jesus vindicates himself, you'll be vindicated. You can also be charitable and patient. You can be loving. You can be peaceful. You can be non-antagonistic. You can set aside your arrogance and your umbrage. And you can forgive those who oppose Jesus and his people and who oppose you because Jesus' victory is secured. It is finished. And he'll make sure all those people who do the bad stuff that every sin is accounted for and answered for. He's going to execute vengeance so you don't have to. And if you are a Christian who claims to believe it, just offer this. Words are really important to me. Clearly, I've said a lot of them today. But words, words can, get, they can get kind of cheap too. The biggest and most authentic indicator of what you really believe, what someone really believes, is you don't just see the words that are written and you don't just hear the words that are said. You look to their actions because those speak far louder. So if you are in Christ and you really do believe the word of chapter 15 and 16 of Revelation, that the Lord will vindicate you. And he does. And he will avenge every wrong against you and those you love, including himself. And it's not your job. Then you'll persevere and you'll overcome even when under attack. Final question, it's up on the screen, and then I'm going to pray. Are you going to be vindicated, or are you going to be avenged? And avenged? Are you going to be vindicated and avenged? Or are you going to be, where will you be proven wrong because you're on the wrong side of God, and you'll fall under God's judgment? I'm going to go back to it. That's decided by who your God is, Christ or the beast, Jerusalem or Babylon. Love you guys. Thank you for giving me so much room to preach the word of God. Let us move into time of communion.